Okay. Well, good morning. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here with us this morning. Um, <clears throat> as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians, a letter written by Paul to a church that he founded and he cared deeply for. Last week, we looked at the first two verses of this book while also stepping back and considering the book as a whole. Recall that the first three chapters uh, of this book, which deal with the calling of the church, revolve more around doctrine. While the second half of the book, which deal with the conduct of the church, deal more with commands and practical applications. We emphasize the importance of understanding the why before the what of our Christian experience. A list of do's and don'ts will not lead to a Christian walk that is fruitful to the God and pleases Him. I like making lists. Uh, Probably should do it more than I do. Um, And checking things off them. But if if your whole goal in doing so is to check off the list, then that motivation is going to wane when times get tough. If if that's all, it's just, oh, I just like checking things off. Actually, that's exactly how it works. When things go tough, then that list isn't that fun anymore. I don't want to, it's not enough of a motivator. And there's something far more important in play. So that's why the why is so important. So last week we identified Paul as the author, and we talked about his relationship. How does he know the Ephesians? And this was orchestrated by the will of God. And it was described in the book of Acts, back in chapters 18 and through 20. And he greeted them, in verse 2, with grace, grace be to you, and peace. Grace from God makes our peace with God possible. God's grace is the ultimate driving force behind our salvation, while peace is what results from it. So the next section here is really all one kind of paragraph, verses 3 through 14. And they form the next paragraph of chapter 1. Interestingly, there are only three complete sentences in this section. Verses 3 through 6, verses 7 down to verse 12, so it's a little hard to find periods, and verses 13 and 14. Those form our three sentences, and those will form... Lord willing, are our, our focal points for the next three weeks. And <clears throat> rather than speaking first about the condition of the Ephesians, like in some of his other letters where Paul immediately goes into talking about them, uh, he quickly launches into praise to God for his blessings. And it's possible, in, in fact, and there's some commentators that believe that verses 3 through 14 is a poem or a hymn uh, with different commentators grouping the verses differently to try to come up with a meter <clears throat> that, 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 that it would fit into. But it's kind of its own little section here, right? It, he, he goes into blessing for God and then it, it, all the way down through verse 14 unto the praise of his glory. And then he comes back to the Ephesians. And it doesn't really matter for our purposes whether it's a hymn or a poem. Um, I'm going to call it a eulogy. That is what I'm going to call it. And there's a reason why. Um, You say, what's a eulogy? Uh, Eulogy, according to the English dictionary, is just a a speech that's writing in commendation of someone. Uh, Talking about their attributes, talking about their qualities. 
And the reason I do that is because of the first word in verse 3, blessed. Blessed is a Greek word, eulogeto. Uh, so you probably get now where eulogy comes from. The English word eulogy, or to eulogize, comes from the Greek here, which means to uh, be well spoken of, to be worthy of praise. And this paragraph is filled with blessing and praise to God, recognizing something he has done. Verse 3 essentially is the summary verse. And I'll read it here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Semicolon. Or colon, sorry, colon. So the summary verse instructs us that God the Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. And from there, we investigate what the blessings are. In terms of the structure, verses 4 through 6 keep the focus on God the Father. That's what our section will be today. Next week, in verse 7, the focus changes somewhat to from God the Father to Jesus Christ, uh, or at least from blessings from God to us through Jesus Christ, in whom, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Christ. At the end of the paragraph, in verses 13 and 14, the focus changes one final time to the blessings we have from God through the Spirit, that Holy Spirit of promise in verse 13, and the one who is the earnest of our inheritance in verse 14. So today, my goal is to focus on the summary statement in verse 3 and then dig into the blessings that point primarily back to God the Father, which bring us down to verse 6. And so as our, our approach today to these verses is going to be to bring a set of questions to ask about them. Verses 3, well, really verses 4, 5, and 6. But we will start with verse 3. Who is acting? Who is being acted upon? What did he do? Why did he do it? And what does this mean for me? So we begin with who is acting? Who is doing the action? In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So it's our summary statement, and it indicates as believers, remember that Paul's audience is believers. We talked about that last week. We have been blessed, so as believers, and that includes us, we're believers reading it, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings. So who did that? Well, it's clear here that the actor is God the Father, right? God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who? He is mentioned in all of the verses in this section. He hath chosen us. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise and the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted. So the focus of action here is on God the Father and on and not on mankind. That's a key. The Bible repeatedly points to God the Father as a source of blessing. In fact, from the very beginning, um, in Genesis chapter 12, when God chooses Abraham, or Abram. It says the following. 
Uh, this is Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So, from the very choosing and setting forth of the Jewish nation through Abraham, God promises and is the author of blessing. There's also blessing from the eyes of David in the Psalms. Um, Not only the blessing that God provides, but the blessing that he deserves or the eulogizing. We're going to keep saying that. The blessing that he deserves, there's a difference between the blessing... Uh, that he gives to us and the blessing that he deserves from us. And we'll talk more about that. Psalm 72 and verse 17 says, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. So they're blessed. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So the actor is clearly God, the source of blessing. And he is the historical source of blessing. And we move to the next question. Who is being acted upon? Who is being acted upon? Well, this is pretty easy. (laughs) Um, If we just read through verses... 4 through 6, we see these either descriptors or pronouns. Us, us, we, us, us. (laughs) Right? You see us in verse 4. He's chosen us. We should be holy, having predestinated us. He's made us accepted in the beloved. So, so... All of these us's and me's point back to verse 1. To the saints which are at Ephesus. To the faithful in Christ Jesus. The believers. Those he's writing to. We, as believers, are the recipients of these blessings. We are the ones being acted upon. So, what does that mean? Or does that not mean? It doesn't, or Paul is not indicating that God has blessed unbelievers with all spiritual blessings. So that brings up the natural question, has God blessed unbelievers at all? Is there any blessing from God to unbelievers? And we would say, yes, there is. And we would tend that a phrase that's used to describe that is common grace, the common grace of God to man. Here's an example, uh, Matthew 5.45, the words of Jesus Christ that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he, God the Father, maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So God gives rain to people who curse his name. He gives sun to people who uh, despise him. So he certainly blesses everyone in some way. But these are special blessings that we're going to talk about. Spiritual blessings. So, so far these are pretty easy questions, right? Who is doing the acting? God the Father. Who is he acting on? 
us, believers. This one gets, now we get into it a little bit deeper. What did he do? What did God do? So let's dig into the actions themselves. In verse 3, Paul tells us that God the Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So here's where we want to draw the distinction between us blessing God, blessed be the God who had blessed us. So um, does that mean that God is eulogizing us? Is he praising us? Um, And I don't believe so. Um, When the word blessing is used by God toward us, blessing has the idea of God giving us benefits. We are praising his name and he is providing us benefits. What type of benefits has he given us? All spiritual blessings, it says. All spiritual blessings. Well, in the Old Testament, the blessings were frequently material. And so to see an example of that, let's turn for a second to Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Old Testament blessings were frequently material. And I'm going to read the first eight verses of Deuteronomy 28 and look at these blessings and think about them being material versus spiritual. And it shall come to pass, Deuteronomy 28, 1, that if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall the fruit of thy, or shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be the basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way, and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, and in all that thou settest thy hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So those are pretty material, right? Things. You're gonna have you're gonna have good crops, enemies, they're gonna come one way at you, and then they're gonna scatter. So what about a spiritual blessing? What's a spiritual blessing? If we're thinking about the terms of benefits or enablement bestowed by God to his children, what do all spiritual benefits look like? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul contrasts the natural and the spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 say the following. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of Lord of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, From the verses here, we learn that to be spiritual is to want and to understand things that originate with the Spirit of God. 
to want and to understand things that originate with the Spirit of God. So what are other ways, or what are ways that we can be blessed spiritually? I'll just list a couple of them here. We can be blessed as a spiritual gift, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about them. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. So there are spiritual gifts that God's Word tells us about, not material gifts. Spiritual gift would not be one that you would get under your Christmas tree, right? You're not going to open up and see charity, right? It's a spiritual gift. How about spiritual wisdom? Spiritual wisdom is a blessing that we can receive. Colossians 1.9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's a spiritual understanding. So it's understanding something more than just book learning. It's a spiritual understanding. A spiritual grasp. We can also have um, a blessing or a benefit of spiritual assistance. Galatians 6.1. We talked about this not too long ago. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So... That is a, a brother or sister in Christ helping one another. And they're doing so because they're recognizing something spiritually. And they're offering help. And we know from back in our, our verses here in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. That all of these divine enablements have God as their source. And that this enablement of God is comprehensive. We have all spiritual blessings. Now, that doesn't mean that we are like, is that we're spiritual supermen, right? We're like, I have all spiritual blessings. I can do all things, right? By yourself, no, right? We know that through Christ we can do all things. But while we're not made perfect, we have been equipped in every way necessary for our spiritual well-being. So we've been, so contrast this verse, Ephesians uh, 1, 3 We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. And then if you turn over real quick to 2 Peter, in verse 1-3. 2 Peter 1-3. According as his divine power, so it's God, right, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So it's a parallel idea. We have everything we need to be equipped for our spiritual well-being. Now back in our verse in Ephesians, the final part of that verse says that we've been given all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And and the word places is italicized in our King James, which means it was supplied by the translators and would kind of literally read in the heavenlies. And they just, this describes the sphere of heaven, our spiritual blessings. This, uh, this sphere, this, this uh, location or, or uh, venue for the spiritual blessings is repeated throughout this book. The heavenly sphere is where Christ resides today. If you're in Ephesians 1, down in verse 20, It tells us which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. So that's where Christ is today, in the heavenlies. 
uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 6. It is where we sit today positionally with Jesus Christ and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's all a sphere. It is the heavenly sphere where is where the angels reside and are being taught by the actions of God in this world. Uh, Ephesians 3.10 To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So they're learning. They're being told about, taught about the wisdom of God. Um, and they reside in that sphere. And then finally in chapter 6 and verse 12 and 13 we see the heavenly sphere is where spiritual warfare continues into this day. And I'm off by a chapter. There we go. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. It's the same Greek word. So Paul focuses the Ephesians on a type and location of blessing that may not be what our natural desires lean towards, right? We like to think of material blessings. Now, that brings up the question, can a spiritual blessing bring up or or involve material things? And while I believe they can, I don't believe that the material thing is ever the focus, Think about the material things that we remember in the life of Jesus. We remember the manger. We remember the loaves. Remember the donkey. Remember the cross. The key to any importance these physical items have is is what they represent in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm. And the verse back in Ephesians 1-3 We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. That little phrase is repeated ten times in this letter, and it's really critical to our understanding. Without Christ, the plan falls apart. God has a plan, and we're going to learn more about it in just a minute as we continue forward. But it all is made possible by Christ. In Christ. Without that critical ingredient, the plan falls apart. Christ and his finished work on Calvary is essential to these spiritual blessings being made available to us. Our enablement from God is in the spiritual aspect of our lives. They are not meant to make us more rich or to help us to win friends and influence people. We will later in this book see that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So while those good works may involve material things... They, might, they, they are for a heavenly purpose. All right. So the colon at the end of the verse indicates now that the next phrase or phrases provide more details. So you say, well, all spiritual blessings? Well, what are they? Well, we see in verse 4 that God chose us. And in verse 5 that he predestinated us unto the adoption of children. So let's read it verses, the next little chunk there, verses 4 through 6. According... As he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. God the Father chose us in Christ before he created the world. 
The word chosen has the sense that God chose us for himself. And it also says, right, that he hath chosen us in him. The in him, again, points us to the necessity of Christ and his finished work in making this choice. So what did God choose us for? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So in these verses, the divine plan of salvation through election is being described. And if we recall that the glory of God is our ultimate aim in the ministry here, we must be cautious how we approach such amazing truths, recognizing that we are finite beings and cannot fathom all of the applications or implications of what is being said here. And the result, of course, has been strife in the Christian community with disagreements on the relative roles of God and man in salvation. However, we do take God's word for what it says. And so before we dig into, uh, dig in deeper, let's, um, we see in, in verse 5 some additional details. God predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. So let's begin with the uh, word predestined or predestinated. In the Greek, the word is pro-orizo. And um, we, uh, the orizo part of it is what we get the English word horizon from. So it is, and pro is, is, is before, before the horizon, beforehand. To determine or decree beforehand. Like, I'm going to do this before the sun comes up. I'm going to plan for the day. Before the horizon. That's exactly predestinated in the English. Predetermined, foreordained, decreed. And that's even what we what we see before we see the word predestinated, right? In verse 4 it says, According that he has chosen us in him before. So he's chosen us before. God decreed beforehand. Before we, be, before we were created, we had a destination. As believers, that destination would be one where we would be what? Holy and without blame. That destination would also include, verse 5, adoption of children. That destination would also include, verse 6, accepted in the beloved. Those, these all describe the, ultim, the ultimate destination of saved individuals, those who are born again, those who have repented from sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. So let's spend a minute thinking about these outcomes, holy and without blame, before him in love. First, we are chosen to be holy or set apart for God. And then to be without blame is to be without spot or blemish. So we're to be set apart for God. And we're, we're not just like you're setting apart something that's normal. You're setting apart something that has been cleansed. It's, it's, it's quality. It's good. It's without blemish. Thus, if you are a born-again child of God today, he has chosen you to be a spotless one set apart for God's design. But there's a key final ingredient, right? We should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
And while it's possible that this love speaks of God's love for us in divine election, it appears more likely that this love is the attitude and motivation of those that are the elect, those that have been chosen. We don't simply seek to be more separate and spotless by ourselves. We do so with the motivation of love. It's not just a selfish thing, it's, it's out of love. Love unto God, for the great love wherewith he loved us, which is uh, Ephesians 2.4, but also love to one another, born out of what God has done for us. The second outcome is in verse 5, the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And our adoption is a wonderful doctrine, and we've talked about this before, but the Bible is clear that as a believer of Jesus Christ, we are born again children of God. Spiritually, we have been born from above. So, the natural question is, why would you need to be adopted if you've been born? Right? Oliver, you were born to mom and dad. We did not have to adopt you. That would have been kind of redundant, right? Because you're already ours. So why do we need to be adopted? And I think this comes primarily from a, a gaining a cultural context. <clears throat> culturally, culturally, the firstborn had a special position in the family and received greater honor and blessing. See that for Jacob and Esau. Just, it's, it's throughout the Old Testament. So where does that put the Christian in terms of our position before God as his children? If we've been born again, we're, we're sons and daughters, we're children of God, how does, what about our position? Well, the Bible has much to say about our relationship and adoption, and I guess I'll go back one book to Galatians, to chapter 4, should be just a couple pages to your left. Beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now I say that the heir... As long as he was a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until this appointed time, or until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And here's the distinction. The verses here show that, that as a child, an heir and a servant have no difference in position. They, they look the same. While the heir might have the eventual right to something... It makes no difference in his current life. He has to wait until the time appointed of the Father. When we were born again, we were made God's children. So does that mean we we remain no different than those in the world while we are here? Do we just have to wait for something and so we're, we're really just like the servant? No. Here we see that when we are born again, we are adopted, which means that we are instantly placed into a position of the firstborn adult son. Thus, we are not viewed as a child, or no different than a servant, but rather as an heir of God, with remarkable similarity of the position of Jesus Christ himself, which is an amazing thing. 
Let's consider it further. It's in Romans 8. Let's go there. In verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we shall suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. These verses describe the nature of the believer's relationship with God the Father. As born-again children of God, we have the Holy Spirit of God within us and can call upon him as our Father, just as Jesus Christ can. In fact, we are described as joint heirs of God with Jesus Christ. And this is where we see the full meaning of adoption. Adoption speaks of our position before God, which goes beyond simply being brought into his family. Positionally, in terms of how he sees us, we are a co-heir with Christ and have the right to all the privileges that he does as God's firstborn son. And so a biblical definition of adoption is adoption is an act of God's grace, whereby we are not only placed as sons of God, but we are immediately given the full rights and privileges due an adult son. So back in Ephesians chapter 1, the final outcome that God's choice makes possible is at the end of verse 6. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. <clears throat> The phrase, have made accepted, is found one other time in Scripture, and it's kind of a neat one. Uh, it is in Scripture, when the, when in, in the uh, book of Luke, when the angel comes to Mary, and his announcement is, Hail, thou that art highly favored. Thou that art highly favored is the saying here as, have made accepted. This choice of God to predestinate us to adoption puts us in a position of favor. With God, we are highly favored. The final phrase, in the beloved, by context and in connection with the next verse, right? It says, let's read it. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us. So God has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood. In whom, so we, it's Jesus we have redemption through, Right? In Jesus, we have redemption through Jesus' blood. So that final phrase, in the beloved, at the end of verse 6, really points to Jesus Christ. And in fact, um, there's a question as to whether the beloved there actually is Jesus, is referring to Jesus himself. Christ is called God's beloved son six times in the gospel. And also, Peter refers to him as that in 2 Peter 1.17. So our position of favor with God the Father is in Christ. So back to our original question, what did God do? He has granted us the ability to commune with him spiritually by the choice of us that he made before he created the world. The blessings are tremendous and show his favor to us. He gave us the destination of adoption. We have a position as a son and have a future where we will be spotless. This is all an act of God, and it is made possible by His Son through the working of the Holy Spirit. 
So let's move to our next question. Why? Why did he do this? Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. The divine plan of redemption has one ultimate end. There's one reason God did this. To give praise to the glory of God. Redemption is an action planned by God. Right? Verse 5. Right? He said, according to the good pleasure of his will. He decided to do this according to his good pleasure. We didn't say, hey God, this would be a great idea. God said, I think this would be a good idea. And it was. Therefore, all of the wonderful blessings that we have discussed in verses 3 through 6 are not the reason for God's action. They are the result of God's action. Predestination, favor, adoption. They are all wonderful benefits, wonderful blessings, wonderful enablements. But the ultimate reason is to demonstrate the glory of God. Ultimately, the creation serves the purposes of God. Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. So, why he did this is his glory. To bring the praise of his glory. And we'll see that again next time in his Son and the next time in the Spirit. It's all to the praise of his glory. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? The opening eulogy by the Apostle Paul has quickly brought us to some amazing spiritual heights. We are to eulogize or bring praise to God the Father for the spiritual blessings he has given us. We have been enabled by him to understand spiritual things and have God direct and, and we're also able to have God directed motives for our actions. In particular, the blessing that Paul is focusing on in this eulogy is that of salvation, which is made possible by God, who has orchestrated a plan that will save souls to bring glory to his name. And the key ingredient of that salvation is his son, who we will focus on Lord willing next week. So from these lofty heights, what can we see as implications for our lives? Well, I think first one that we can, uh, that we should remember from this is, is reverence to God. We owe everything to him. The actor in what we study today is God and God alone. Man did not somehow climb up to reach the lofty heights and find God there. Instead, God pulled us up to be there with him. He gave us our destination and that should direct all of our worship and song and service to be for him. In 1 Peter 2.9, we're told, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That, so why? What was the purpose of that? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that verse in 1 Peter points us to our uh, second application that we should be and and um, uh, without blame before him in love, spotless and without blame before him in love. So let us live a life that is without blame. That's an expectation for us. I don't think it would be consistent for the Bible to tell us you've been set apart to be spotless or without blame, but whatever you want to live, just live however you want right now. Because I'll clean you up when it's all done. Doesn't seem good? Doesn't. Doesn't seem right. That wouldn't be bringing him glory. 
now. The Bible makes it very clear, though, that we won't ever reach uh, sinless perfection in this life. 1 John 1 8 reminds us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. <clears throat> so, how, so, shouldn't we seek to live a blameless life today? One that shows others the mold that God is, is working us into, or shaping us into. Later in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is going to describe gifts given to the church for this purpose. And what's the outcome of those? Well, let's go to chapter 4 and verse 13. All these gifts, in verse 11, he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. What's the purpose? Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so those gifts are for today. So there's work to be done today. We're not just waiting to be made spotless. We're working on it today. And so may that be our goal as we uh, serve him and and, and spend in our, our Christian walk should be a desire to be blameless, be spotless, be holy, recognizing our position and destination that God's given us. Let's pray.